Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Jeff Pollard, Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the surveillance economy. Welcome, Jeff. Glad to be here. So we have the after effects of Cambridge Analytica playing out in the news. And I think we're all coming into better tune with that there's a thing there that you're calling the surveillance economy that's real. Could you give us a background as to what this thing is beyond simply Facebook and Cambridge Analytica? Yeah. So the surveillance economy, as I define it, is really the data economy. And I often think of the data economy as a euphemism or the most optimistic take on the surveillance economy. When you look at what's emerged between Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, especially when you go past the political aspects of it, when you go past uh, some of the scandalous nature, what you really uncover is that Facebook was collecting, analyzing, and transforming information about individuals at unprecedented levels. And then by opening up its platform was exposing that information to other third parties. And once they exposed that information to those third parties, they really had no control over it. So they couldn't change what Cambridge Analytica or any other parties wanted to do with that information. From a user perspective, what's really important about that, though, is in many ways, Facebook holds that hostage. In order to access Facebook's platform, you have to agree to share information with them. You can opt out, but up until recently, it was very difficult to turn on certain privacy settings and make changes. So when you look at what's happened in recent days, what's really happening is that the dark sort of underbelly or the risks of the data economy are being exposed, and the information that's been collected is really information that's surveillance. Instead of sitting outside your house and watching what you do, I can now collect that information digitally. But that's not just a Facebook issue, right? I mean, part of this goes into there are other firms or other modes or methods of data collection that are difficult to opt out of. Yes, 100%. In fact, what's interesting is that Facebook is really sort of taking it on the chin, so to speak, for a lot of other parties in the industry. When you look at even things like smartphone applications, that track health information for you. Uh, recently, uh, MyFitnessPal experienced a breach and that included uh, usernames and passwords, doesn't appear to have included any information about you know, what people ate or gym photos or anything else, but that's an example of where we're sharing medical information now with our devices. And here's the thing, there's no such thing as patient smartphone privilege or patient app privilege the way that there is patient doctor privilege. And so the applications, those companies, those platforms can do anything with that information they want to. So while Facebook is currently taking a beating for this, to say that they are the only company that's actively engaging in these activities uh, is absurd because over one third of companies are now monetizing data. So the data economy is happening. What's more important of that one third is that you are 2.6 times more likely to grow at 10% or more per year if you engage in the data economy. In other words, not monetizing data makes your company less likely to grow at a double-digit growth rate year over year. 
I'm going to return back to Facebook because one argument that the privacy advocates would make is that these firms, their economic model is built on either privacy abuse or privacy confusion, meaning using Jen as the example, Jen, you might not know what is the use of the data. You might not know how to undo the privacy settings or even understand them in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time you figured that all out and unwrap that ball of yarn, enough is known about you that either using this example, Facebook, or whoever Facebook is engaging with can start making decisions about how they treat you, how they engage with you. Mm -hmm. Is that the basic premise of the privacy advocates and maybe the underpinnings of things like GDPR? I, I think it is. And to defend Facebook slightly in this world, I don't necessarily believe that Facebook started as a company with the idea of conducting full-scale data analytics, behavioral manipulation, et cetera, right? I don't believe that's necessarily their core. What Facebook wanted to do is to maximize the return on investment that advertisers received by using its platform. Unfortunately, in the process of doing that with all the information that users shared with Facebook, what happened is that the pathways for Facebook to become a tool of behavioral manipulation and to become a platform that could be exploited by malicious actors with that data happened. So I don't think it was ever their intent. I think their intent was to create a business model that created maximum value for people that work with them. Unfortunately, once all that information is out there, you can decide whether or not you want to use it for good or evil. And that's one of the biggest problems with the data economy, AKA the surveillance economy, is that we often don't know exactly how information can be used until it's too late, until the algorithm is written or until the model is developed. And by then, that was based on years of data, so there's nothing that we can do to go back and correct it. One part of this equation is well understood, which is the advertising part of this. They're using data about me for advertisers for targeting. I mean, that's embedded into the economy and the argument is I'm getting a valuable set of insights into products and services I may want or at least are relevant to me. So we sort of all win, nothing bad happens. But I think one of the arguments that you're making here, I think, Jeff, is that things like personality profiling others are part of this and other decisions can be made that are, that are well beyond the confines of advertising. And so could you kind of walk through that example of, of other ways that people are using personality profiling based upon behavior on social networks or other networks? Definitely. And you're absolutely right. When you look at the mistake that Facebook made is in pursuit of targeting, their platform exposed too much information. And this is actually a tremendous risk for any organization that wants to begin participating in the data economy. One of the things that every enterprise has to understand, and we consistently talk to our Forrester clients about this, is if you are going to participate in the data economy, you have to understand that what you use your information for may not be what someone else would use it for. And that's exactly what happened to Facebook. Their platform allowed access, but it allowed more access than perhaps they intended. We don't know the answer to that. But it allowed a group to build not just predictive profiles of people, but also local information in some cases about people to uh, allow for micro-targeting. When you think about what's happening now, especially with things like Facebook likes uh, and other things, an API that's since closed down, 
some of the models out there for personality study, there's one in particular called the Ocean Five-Factor Model of Personality. Several researchers, including the ones mentioned um, as part of Cambridge Analytica, but others as well, had begun doing research about how using information that Facebook had gathered, they could create a personality profile about you that described how open you were, how conscientious you were, what, how neurotic you happened to be. And that personality model and the data that was gathered was so predictive that with around 70 or so Facebook likes, they could predict your income, your sexual orientation, and your political affiliation with over 85% accuracy. And what's so dangerous about that is that there are countries in the world where sexual orientation, right, can get someone killed. And so when you discover that a company has, A, this information, B, developed models that expand upon this information for analysis, and then C, open that model up to third parties in pursuit of revenue, you know, there are lives at stake with some of the predictive power of these algorithms. And that's something that either Facebook didn't understand or understood and ignored. And frankly, we just don't have an answer for that. But that level of risk is something that every enterprise needs to think about. Because again, what you use your information for, the morals and the ethics that you wrap around that as a corporate value, once you sell that information, you cannot guarantee the company that you sell it to has the same corporate values, morals, or ambitions, or that they'll use that data in the way that you would deem right or that we would all deem moral or ethically right. So, Jeff, what exactly is Facebook, maybe they're not selling it or maybe they are, but what is the data that's being shared from the platform? So this is where we get into the realm of weasel words that <laughs> all, of, all of these companies use. The weasel words that most of these companies use, and we saw this happen with, uh, with Zuckerberg in front of Senate yesterday, yeah. is that all of these companies say they don't sell your information. In other words, they haven't sold information about Jen or Victor or Jeff directly. In other words, I can't look at their invoices and figure out that someone bought information about me. In fact, don't they? I mean, I think Facebook even says, like, you own your own information, but you're not really necessarily in control of that information sometimes. Exactly. And, and Facebook says, like, we don't sell user data. Um, in fact, that, that's a specific quote from Zuckerberg yesterday. But what you discover happens is that a single data point does not have much value. Mm. Lots of data points in aggregate have a tremendous amount of value. And what Facebook ultimately sells within that information is analytics and transformations about those users so that way they can set advertising rates. By the way, Google does a similar thing with AdWords. They look at what searches are being conducted, what people are looking at. The difference is that Google hasn't opened up its platform in the same way to allow access to all of that information that Facebook had. When you think about the overall platform and the kind of information that someone might have about you, when you think about Facebook, what you have to understand is that it has geolocation information. It has family information. Uh, so when Facebook opened up its platform, not only was, the, was Cambridge Analytica and other companies able to extract information about your Facebook likes, what you enjoyed, where, uh, what, what, you, what you liked, what you didn't like, your preferences, they were also able to gather location information, which was something that they never should have been able to get to. So there, there isn't ever a situation where you walk into one of these companies and you'll find information about yourself on sale. 
But what they are doing is they're using that information about you, your preferences, your behaviors, your attitudes in aggregate to allow them to exchange that for some form of value. That value could be advertising rates or that value could be transformations um, on information used by uh, an analytics firm or a marketing firm or, in the case of recent history, an elections or a political firm that was attempting to you know, sway an election one way versus the other. Yeah, and I think one of the economic drivers you're pointing at is people can react to information about Jen and begin influencing the way you live, the decisions you make, yeah, what behavior, you buy, that yeah. type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so where you spread your money around will change. The other way is, is different, which is the way they treat you. So not what decisions you're making, but what decisions they're making to you now that you're being either benefiting from or being inflicted by. So is there part of this that allows them to start making decisions about Jen as it relates to things like healthcare policy, uh, credit ratings, other things that are, are probably more insipid ultimately? And, and we're seeing that happen around the world. So right now in China, there is a social monitoring system that is in place and being piloted. So it's not widely deployed, but that controls your social score, effectively controls whether or not you can buy uh, tickets to get on a train, uh, whether or not you can rent a certain apartment, uh, whether or not you have privileges to certain areas. So we're already seeing where this combination of massive sets of data, predictive personality models, data science it can go and how marketing might be about targeting me and, and my preferences for something that I might ultimately appreciate, something I may not have known about. But again, the dark side of this is that it can flip very quickly and become used for evil and is being used for evil. Again, we're, we're seeing it happen in China right now. And the big concern is what happens when more of those use cases come here to the United States and other parts of the world, for example, when suddenly, you know, your health insurance rates are dictated uh, not by your corporate policy, but by algorithms that have collected information about you that, by the way, you may not have been able to opt out of. So it's that law of unintended consequences that we're really seeing happen in the surveillance economy that represents the real dark side of what happens when you collect this much data and use it for predictive purposes. This is literally an episode of Black Mirror. It kind of is. And that is my favorite show. <laughs> but that's only because I worry that the future is going to be exactly like one right. of those episodes. Right. I mean, George Orwell got it right kind of thing? Here's what George Orwell got wrong. What George Orwell got wrong is that he didn't know we were going to buy this stuff ourselves. So within the surveillance economy, I call this opt-in surveillance because I'm opting in to Facebook. And look, Facebook, it, in the strictest sense of the word, didn't do anything wrong because we did all have to consent to this. Now, they might have hidden privacy controls, used dark patterns to make it hard to find them, make it difficult to manage. But all of us said yes to this if we use Facebook. We are guilty of that. Now, they made it hard and they made it undoubtedly unethical for us to make those changes. But it's absolutely true that we agreed to it. What we all have to get better at and, and what hopefully regulation comes, but regulation often comes late, is being able to give us a choice to fight back against this because what Facebook used to make you opt in to the surveillance is that if you wanted to see pictures of your high school friend's kids, then you had to be on Facebook. And if you wanted to communicate with a certain family member, you had to be on Facebook. Uh, and so they ultimately held it hostage where you had to opt into surveillance. And I think that's what Orwell got wrong. He didn't realize that we were going to buy the device that would listen to us in our homes so we could order things easier 
but we would actually just have it there so it would record us all the time. That we would choose the smartphone that tracked our location all the time that's now being used repeatedly to solve murders with companies like Google, Verizon, and others actively cooperating with government to identify suspects of crime. He didn't realize we were going to buy those devices ourselves. He thought the government would force them on us, and that's simply not true. We've done it ourselves. So the basic principle is that first, second, or third-party data is valuable. But there's a concept of zero-party data, meaning that I can create data about myself, control it, and sell it and make money so that I'm not as vulnerable or not as unknowingly vulnerable about data about me that's being used, that is not you know, controlled by me. Is, is zero-party data a real thing? Is it going to become a real thing? And does this catalyze it to become a real thing? It might be a real thing one day, but so far, all we've seen about being able to monetize your own data directly has been a few Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, uh, cryptocurrency-based initial coin offerings, which haven't exactly had the best reputation for producing a sustainable business model. So at this point, it looks like it may become something and people are thinking of it, but so far, the only place that it has become anything is what appears to be a fraudulent money-making scheme in terms of a cryptocurrency initial coin offering. Uh, but if those are harbingers of what is to come, then maybe it does become a market in the future. So one of the things that we saw in the financial crisis was that there was, you can argue, either imprecise or precise understandings of people's credit worthiness or how they would use credit. And you see that in two ways. One is sort of either knowingly or unknowingly giving credit to people who should have it, which created the housing issue. Or what we also saw with, with credit cards, which is actually having the credit card uh, providers making decisions after year one at a certain sort of flat rate based upon certain behaviors or, or the determination. Is this part of that equation and we're just sort of seeing different aspects of it play out? It, it, I think that the financial crisis is an excellent parable for the data slash surveillance economy. And here's why. I'll go a little bit of a different direction. All of those things had an absolute impact on the consumer, which ultimately led to many aspects of the crisis. But what really happened when you look inside the financial crisis is that those banks and those companies that were trading derivatives and trading securities were doing so making assumptions based on information and data that at its core was fundamentally flawed. We've all heard the tales of things like some of the models didn't predict that interest rates could ever be negative or didn't predict that home values would ever decline. So we had a series of incredibly advanced mathematics, quantitative information, data analytics, all coming together. And that misapplication of information, those fundamentally wrong assumptions about what information meant or what information would cause, is part of what led to the financial crisis on top of vast amounts of greed, certainly, you know, potential manipulation by banks, poor decisions by consumers. But at its core, the reason why many of the banks suffered as much as they did during the financial crisis is because a series of events occurred that they never anticipated, which is the fact that home values would decline, that consumers couldn't pay for all of the obligations that they had. And all of those happened at roughly the same time. When you look at what's happening inside the data economy, the same thing is happening. We have a nascent business model emerging that is right now worth tons of money, right? As mentioned before, it is one of the aspects of being a high-growth company is commercializing and monetizing data about your customers. 
But within this brand new business model, what we don't understand is what we have wrong. What we don't understand is how we're analyzing these things incorrectly. And that could lead to a systemic backfire. And that backfire may not be as bad as the financial crisis in terms of what it represented to the, uh, to the U.S. And, and the globe, for that matter. But what this could represent is certainly the same level of impact to the consumer because one thing that's going to have to happen as a result of this is you really have to start figuring out who do I trust now? Which companies are being authentic with me and which companies are simply trying to manipulate me? Or just to jump in here, which companies don't know because their, their intent is yeah. they don't want to do anything untoward or, or that's going to affect you negatively. They just didn't know that that's the, to your earlier point, that that's the end game here. Absolutely. And what that can ultimately cause is an erosion of faith in institutions, in, in the vendors and the trusted partners that we interact with. And so in many ways, understanding this, understanding your customers and understanding the value of authentic experiences and real customer engagement is one of the defenses to this. And what's most interesting to me as someone that has a background in, in security and risk is I look at our customer experience research and our um, marketing research and our digital research. And what I see in that are seeds that begin to represent your defense of this because there is going to be a new model for attack that we haven't experienced before. And to me, that attack really comes out of the fact that we are now living from a brand perspective in the post-truth era. And that's something I'm actually talking about at one of our upcoming Forrester events uh, in Chicago at Digital Transformation is really how do you defend your brand in the era of post-truth? That's part of what the data economy allows you to do because you can make things mean anything you want and you have the predictive power based on the information to be incredibly successful at manipulating people. Well, it's kind of a logical step because we've already, we're already in a place where because of social, we've democratized somebody's brand or made the brand no longer in their control now to your language post-truth, it's not even sure what the brand could possibly be or what could be said about you. And it just becomes doctrinated as a false truth, which is, you know, sort of the fake news is placed against the brand. And to your point on trust, which is currency in the commercial markets, you just have a place where people don't know how to think about trust in that context. I mean, that's hard for a brand to even think about managing something it's already lost control of. And now it may not even understand the composition of it. Yes, and, and that's the lesson I think that's one of the most important lessons to take away from Facebook and Cambridge Analytica is that this is a real-life example in the 21st century of weaponized information being used to manipulate and achieve the desired outcomes by an organization. And so regardless on whether or not you agree or disagree with the political motivations of that organization, this isn't a moral or ethical statement about either Facebook or Cambridge Analytica. This is a this is an acknowledgement that we can successfully weaponize information and that as consumers of all these various technologies, we are sharing enough information to allow someone to use that information either for us or against us but we don't have control of it once we've shared it. At that point, it's out of our hands. So one way to think about this is that we expect a level of abuse in control-based nation states, states that sort of use information to influence, coerce, control, whatever way their citizenry. We, we expect it in public safety in democracies where it's actually used for good because information allows them to 
to solve a crime faster, to respond faster, all sorts of things. And there's an interesting um, case study, which is after the bombing of the Boston Marathon, you had a lot of people submitting on a generous basis pictures of people in hoods because they already had some understanding that you know there's the, the bombers had hoods. The issue was that often the pictures of the people weren't the bombers. And so now you had a problem where on the good side of it, you had the public coming together to help solve something. The bad part of it is you had non-targets or, or non-criminals being sent to police and with unclear as to what might happen next. I mean, that's sort of the, the way to think of the good of this and the bad and how, how, how quick that slope arrives and how slippery that slope can be. And that it's democratized. To your point about how social has reduced some of those barriers, the other thing that's happened is that using this information in a way that's unexpected or illicit or immoral is easier than it's ever been. In the same way that it's becoming easier for a company to collect information or analyze information or access that data, it's also becoming easier for individuals to have access to that information to do things with it as well. And that's exactly what we saw in the the Boston example um, on Reddit, where a number of of incorrectly identified suspects actually suffered like real-life consequences as a result of the fact that um, a weaponized site on the internet that had surveillance data, right, had cameras and other things, misidentified the person responsible for that particular attack. And so those barriers are being lowered. A lot of times we think about this from the context of it being of it, the barrier being lowered from an enterprise standpoint. But when it comes to surveillance and using data for predictive uh, use cases, that barrier is being lowered just as much for the individual end user that might decide to do something with it. And so then it's less of a corporate issue. It's an individual's morality, an individual's agenda that might dictate what's being used and how it's being used. So core to our purpose as a company is helping our clients best position in an environment where the customer is taking control. And in this example, the customer is actually losing control and where they have to advance on digital. So you have sort of this collision of digital data and customer empowered type of thing. What is, what is the big to do here for CMOs or privacy and security professionals in terms of grappling with this very fluid environment where you can have different perspectives, the, the bar is changing, the world is changing fast here. They have to be able to marshal their brand in a, in a chaotic world, it, as you called it, post-truth. And privacy security has to be able to defend. They have to know things about things to defend their firm fairly. What does it mean to these leaders of the company that are at the front lines of this very dynamic environment? When I talk about the surveillance economy, one of the points that I stress is that as a company, you are going to have to make moral and ethical decisions based on what your comfort level is in terms of what you're going to do with your data yourself and in terms of how you're going to monetize that information. You will absolutely need to draw limits around what information you might use, how you might need to use it, and who you might share that information with. And one of our colleagues here, Brennan Purcell, has an excellent uh, report about that around the ethics of artificial intelligence, right? So that's kind of one example. You really have to think about this from a, a corporate perspective. One of the things that I talked about about a year ago before the Cambridge Analytica um, issue emerged is whether or not individuals are going to have to become whistleblowers in order to identify the fact that companies are engaging in these activities. 
And this is a real piece of advice that I share. If you find out your company is doing something that's unethical or immoral or illegal, then you might have to be willing to step out and say, this isn't okay. And that's exactly what we saw that got Facebook and Cambridge Analytica started because uh, Christopher Wiley did step up and say, this isn't okay and I'm gonna share this information, right? Um, the third thing that I think really you have to think about here, and I'm gonna give a nod to one of our colleagues, uh, Fatima Katibu about this. Uh, in a recent blog post, she talked about the fact that Facebook and other organizations are now suddenly becoming behavioral scientists, right? They are behavior manipulators, and they're becoming that accidentally in some cases and unintentionally in others where there might be manipulating behaviors and not realizing that they're actually manipulating a single individual or a group of individuals. And that's something else that customers have to understand is that you are moving from becoming, with all the information you have, you're moving from becoming a marketer to a behavioral scientist that's attempting to change people's behaviors, and you've got to have boundaries about what you're willing to do, and you've got to make sure that you have an ethical stance in terms of how you approach that. And I think that's something that a lot of marketing teams are not prepared to address, that they've gone from being someone that was trying to drive revenue to being someone that's mass manipulating an individual, uh, an individual group's behaviors. Well, there's, there's three things as we close this podcast. One is I'm not going to sleep tonight. And two is when I'm not sleeping, I'm turning off my devices. And three, thank you so much for your time today, Jeff. You scared the hell out of me. Thanks, Jeff, for joining us. <laughs> yeah, I've done what I came to do, so I'm glad I could be here. Hey, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. If you could take a few minutes to fill out our survey about the What It Means podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it. Visit for.com slash podcast, that's F-O-R-R slash podcast, to provide feedback. Thanks for listening.